You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew, the fourth chapter, Matthew chapter four, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. We're going to do a line-by-line, what's called an expository study of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you are, I know, familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but we want to dive into some of the things that Jesus uh, taught in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, look at the truth that he brought forth there. But let's lay a little groundwork for it. Let's back up. The Sermon on the Mount actually is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but we're going to back up to chapter 4 and look at some things from chapter 4 that will bring some light to us and help us understand some things. So let's look at Matthew 4 and verse 17. Uh, So what has happened, Jesus has left Nazareth, his hometown, He's moved his ministry down to Capernaum, which, as you know, is a a town, a city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, sometimes there's some misunderstanding about what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's referring to there is, of course, uh, if you can imagine Within three and a half, a little more than three and a half years, um, the church age will begin. What we know as the church age is going to begin. And, uh, you know, relatively speaking, over time, that is not a very long period of time. So Jesus was preaching these things in advance to give the people a heads up and let them know that there was something big that was coming. So uh, in this point in his ministry, he began to declare Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, so look at verse 23, and it says that he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So always remember, the, the focus of Jesus' ministry was teaching, preaching, and healing. So Jesus taught, he went into the synagogues, he taught the people, he preached to the people, and then he ministered healing to the people. And of course, as we've looked at and we've studied in the past, the reason that Jesus spent so much time teaching and preaching uh, was to declare things like the kingdom of God is at hand, but also to build faith in the hearts of the people. You know, God wanted to move in the lives of the people so greatly that he would meticulously take time, and of course, Jesus acting this out, walking this out, would take time to teach the people the Word of God so that faith could arise in their hearts and they could receive from him what he wanted to do in their lives. And so, in again, verse four, uh, 23, chapter 4, verse 23, again, he went about teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, when you hear the word gospel, you, you probably know that word. It means good news. So mm-hmm. translated out, 
It says that he taught in their synagogues and he preached the good news of the kingdom. So what he was saying is, uh, listen, y'all, there's something that is coming. There is something big that is coming and it's called the kingdom of God. And then he would minister healing to the people. Verse 24 says this, then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them, and great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, okay? So that's where we pick up here now. So his ministry has launched. He has uh, begun to gain fame throughout the region. And notice what it says, though, in chapter 5 of verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, the multitudes began to gather as his fame began to spread all around. Now, notice it, it his fame spread all the way into uh, Syria, which is, of course, we know Syria as, as a nation as of today, and it was a Gentile nation then, but his fame even spread into that part of the world, And uh, but he did not take advantage of this to catapult his ministry. Matter of fact, he told, you remember what he told the Syrophoenician woman? He told her, he said, listen, I've not been come to minister to the Gentile world yet. I've been sent first to minister to the children of Israel. And so that's what he was endeavoring to do. So what he did is he withdrew from that place that the, all these people were gathering, and then he took his disciples and he went up to a mountain, but he drew back from the crowd. Now, something I want you to always remember about Jesus is that he is and was, but at this time he was 100% God and he was 100% man. And so what I want you to always remember is during his earthly ministry, he experienced what you and I would experience in our physical bodies. So, uh, you know, if, if you minister all day long and you're laying hands on people or ministering, pe healing to people, you grow very tired. And Jesus himself got tired. He was not invincible. He was not... Uh, you know, without need of, of food and sleep and the basic necessities that you and I need. And so he knew that he was going to need some rest. He knew that he also was going to need some help. So back up and look at verse 18. So he based his ministry in Capernaum, and then he went for a walk down by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw the brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, just a little ways down, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And of course, you know uh, that those weren't the only disciples, that he eventually gathered 12 disciples. Now, in his wisdom, he knew that for his ministry to be effective and for him to be able to accomplish everything that God wanted him to accomplish, he knew that he was going to need help. 
Now, he didn't just gather the disciples to have 12 guys close to him that he could teach all the time. No, he he, he used them to minister and to uh, teach uh, them some things about ministry, and he could begin to use them to help him minister and meet the needs of the people. All right, so chapter 5 and verse 1, again, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, pay Pay close attention. You remember, I always tell you, pay attention to the details. So when the sermon, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount starts, it's Jesus and his 12 disciples. The crowds aren't with them at this point. Okay, so it's a very intimate setting. It's Jesus teaching them. And so one of the things that you have to remember when you're reading the first portions of the Sermon on the Mount is this, is that Jesus is involved in ministry training. He is teaching them about things pertaining to ministry, okay? So let's read verses 2 through 10, okay? So chapter 5, verse uh, 2, then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice something, again, paying attention to the details. In verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So verses 3 through 10, he begins talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he ends in verse 10 by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing I want you to notice is verses 3 through 10 are a spiritual progression. Okay, it is a spiritual progression, progression, just as natural growth is a progression. Okay, so notice what he said in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that word poor there in the actual language, in the Greek language, means totally bankrupt. It doesn't mean poor financially. It means somebody who is totally bankrupt. And notice what he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. So those who are totally bankrupt spiritually, he said, blessed are them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be eligible for the new birth, to be eligible for uh, the salvation that he was going to purchase and to provide for humanity, you have to be spiritually bankrupt. You have to be poor in spirit. Okay. Now, if I fast forward, if you look at verse 10, it said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Well, basically only mature Christians can handle persecution. So he starts out in verse three, talking about those who need the new birth. And then he ends verse 10 and that little portion talking about those 
who can handle persecution. In other words, those that are spiritually mature. Okay. So, and I know we've heard these, uh, what are called the Beatitudes broken down individually, and we've heard them applied to many different things. And I'm, I, I guess in certain contexts, they could be applied to that. But look at verse four, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So if verse three is referring to the need for the new birth, then verse four is talking about once you are born again, uh, maybe if you're like me, you realize now, thank God I was born again as a teenager. I didn't live out, you know, many years in, into my adulthood before I gave my heart to Christ. But I was still guilty of things and things that I regret and things that I don't like that I did, okay? And so when Jesus said, blessed are they who are who mourn, they, for they shall be comforted, when you come to Christ and you're born again, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there are going to be things that you regretted doing or regret doing before you got saved, and there is an opportunity for you to mourn over those things. But Jesus wants you to know that you will be comforted. What's the comfort that he brings to somebody that's born again? Well, the fact of the matter is that your past is gone. It's been washed away and cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, that past that you are ashamed of and that you're mourning over, there's no reason to mourn anymore. So you'll be comforted by that. In verse 5, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we're going to talk more about this in a little bit. But the word meek means to become teachable. Okay? Meek does not mean broken down, uh, weak. Okay? Somebody that is truly meek is somebody that is teachable. When, when, when someone gets born again that after that, they need to be taught the Word of God. They need to be discipled and trained according to the, the Word of God. Now, if you'll uh, make a note in your, in your Bible, or on your notes, rather, to, uh, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, I'm going to read this to you, and it's going to ring a bell to you when I read it. Jesus said, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden.'" That word laden means loaded. Uh, and I will give you rest. I tell you what, put your marker there in Matthew 5. Let's go over there. I want to look at that, Matthew 11. Turn over with me. It's just a few pages. Matthew chapter 11, and look at verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy loaded, and I will give you rest. You know, one way to tell whether you're in faith or not is, are you resting? You know, when you're in faith and you're trusting God and your trust is totally on him, there is a byproduct of that that's called rest. When you're trying to carry the load, there it's not restful. <laughs> and Jesus will, God's plan for our lives is for us to, to be a restful people. You know, we shouldn't be agitated and anxious and worried and upset all the time because uh, the world is like that. No, there needs to be something different about us and that there is peace and rest about us. 
Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So the implication in verse 29 is, is that there are other yokes that you can take that are not Jesus's yoke, okay? But he says, take his yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he tells us a little bit about himself. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am meek. The New King James says gentle, but the actual word is meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Well, I think if you know anything about the Lord Jesus, if there was anybody who was definitely not weak, that was Jesus. Jesus is one of the strongest individuals that I know, and I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually, mentally, uh, every way. He is, is, is absolute embodiment of strength, but yet he says, I am meek and lowly. Okay, what does that mean? Well, somebody that is meek, again, is somebody that is leadable, they are teachable, they are not haughty and proud uh, in the sense of that they are able to be taught. And uh, lowly in heart means this, that you know your dependency is on someone else. So even the Lord Jesus labored and ministered in this life, in, in the earth, knowing he was totally dependent on God the Father. He laid that groundwork for us, and he says, in, uh, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he is uh, telling us that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, but the fact is he is teachable. He is meek and lowly. Now, the the regular King James, as I said, uses the word meek, not gentle, okay? And, and so somebody that is teachable is totally confident and secure in who they are in Christ, okay? Jesus was secure in who he is and was when he was walking in the earth. He knew, I am uh anointed, I am the son of God, and so forth and so on. And, and what you find when you are confident in that, in who you are in Christ, you, you find yourself where you don't have to defend yourself, and you don't get offended when people try and correct you and help you and do all of those types of things. No, you are uh, lowly in heart, as Jesus said that he is, and you are allowing yourself to be guided and taught by the Lord as you walk in him, okay? So Jesus said this. Now go back over to Matthew 5. And he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall, this is verse 5, inherit the earth. Now what this is is a reference to God's blessing and favor being upon your life in order to prosper you and increase you. So Jesus is telling us the meek, the teachable, if they will listen to what God does, you will inherit the earth. You will inherit what you need to inherit in order to be and become whoever God wants you to be. Now in verse six, he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Now, once you become teachable, as it says in verse five, then you will become hungry and thirsty for the things of God and especially the word of God. And, and so much so that only God can satisfy that. I love the, the fact that whenever the scripture refers to partaking of the word of God in God's presence, it always makes a reference to hunger and thirst. And here's why. How many of you, and you don't have to answer this, but just thought, a rhetorical question, how many of you ate something last week? I know I did, okay? All right, well, how many of you ate something today? All right, you don't eat just once, you continually eat. In other words, because your body needs it and you are hungry and thirsty, one time will not satisfy you for life, all right? And some, some people have that misunderstanding about our walk in the Lord. You know, I, 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 I go to church every Sunday. You know, well, that's great. You need to go to church on Sunday, but you need to be feeding on the Word of God all the time because you, you hunger and thirst all the time. Now, you know, something unusual happens, just as a little side note, you know, if you've ever fasted for an extended period of time, you'll know this, that once you get past a certain point, you're no longer hungry anymore, okay? Did you know the same thing can happen to you spiritually? If you deny yourself the spiritual food that you need, that hunger will taper off, and pretty soon you will not realize that you're even hungry spiritually anymore. So somebody says, well, what do I need to do to... Uh, you know, become hungry again. Well, start eating, start feeding yourself and, and feeding on the word of God, and it will cause that hunger to begin to grow. Now, I, in the actual Greek language, uh, it implies this. When Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, what it's saying is eat until you're fully satisfied. You know, um, I'm just like anybody. I love a good buffet, okay? And, uh, you know, I'm just like everybody. I have a tendency to overstuff myself at a buffet. Well, what the, what the, what the word is actually telling us here is eat all you want, okay? Stuff yourself with the word of God, all right? And then later on, you'll be hungry for more, okay? So now here's what's interesting. In verses three through six, Jesus is talking about input, income, you know, being put into us, the word being put into us, starting at the new birth, starting at growing spiritually, and we're we're being fed the word of God, we're being discipled and we're being taught. But then in verse seven, he kind of changes gears and he starts talking about giving out giving out of what you've been feeding on, giving out of what he's been putting on the inside of you. Verse seven says this, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Now, you cannot give out something that you don't first take in. You will not be merciful until you have, have allowed God's mercy to be put into you. See, a lot of times people, and, you know, let's just talk about mercy for, for a moment. You know, a lot of times people don't extend mercy to other people 
and I'm talking about believers, because they don't have a full revelation of how merciful God has been to them. And so what happens is, if you don't have a revelation of that, you won't be merciful to other people. It's people that that realize God has truly been merciful to me, and he's been good to me. And so that's what enables you to be merciful to other people. All right. So uh, Jesus goes on to say that when you give out mercy, you obtain mercy. So we see here the first teaching that God gives or that Jesus gives us on the principle of sowing and reaping. You know, and we often attribute that to money, but it's much, much greater than money. This is a spiritual law that is true with anything that we give out. Uh, Go over with me, put your marker there in Matthew 5, and let's go over to Luke chapter 6 real quick. And I want to show you something. Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. Jesus said this, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he, God, is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And this is the verse then that we always quote all the time. Verse 38, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Uh, With the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I know we use that that verse all the time where offerings and stuff are concerned and, and rightfully so, but money is not mentioned anywhere in 35, 36, 37, or 38. What Jesus is teaching us in the pure context of those four verses is this. If you give mercy, mercy will be given to you. If you give judgment, judgment will be given back to you. If you give love, love will be given back to you. Okay, so you will reap whatever it is that you sow. If you condemn people, you're going to receive condemnation. If you forgive people, you will be forgiven. Okay, so just wanted to mention that, that this is where that he begins that concept about telling the disciples, okay, whatever you give out is what's going to be brought back to you. So going back to chapter five in Matthew, so he said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what makes a merciful person blessed is the fact that sooner or later they will harvest mercy. And the same thing with grace and so forth and so on. In verse 8, he says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now what he means is this, the person that keeps themselves pure in heart and free from contaminants will be able to perceive God. See, we've we've, we've thought that meant this. If you keep your heart pure, you'll go to heaven. Well, keeping your heart pure is not what gets you to heaven, okay? You need to keep your heart pure, that's for sure. But 
receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior is what gets you into heaven. So he must be talking about something different than seeing God in the new birth. What he's talking about here is a perception of God in the sense of how do you see God as a believer? If your heart is contaminated, it will cause your perception of God to be contaminated. Okay? So, you know, what can contaminate your heart? Well, unconfessed sin can contaminate your heart. Bitterness, unforgiveness, those things can contaminate your heart. As a matter of fact, if they're not dealt with, it will cause your heart to grow hard. Now, somebody says, well, I thought your heart is, is what got born again. No, it's your spirit that gets born again. Now, sometimes, not to get on a tangent, but sometimes the Word of God refers to, in the New Testament, the human spirit and the heart as the same thing. But most of the time, it is not the same thing. And the reason we know that is in Peter's uh, letter, in First Peter, he tells us to love one another out of a pure heart. Now, he's writing to believers. So these people are born again, but he tells them you need to love one another out of a pure heart. What's he talking about? Out of a pure motivation, motivations of the heart. What is it that is your heart intent? What is it that is going on in your heart? And so he tells you, love one another with pure heart, pure motivation, pure intent. Okay? So it is possible for our hearts to get contaminated and our hearts to grow hard towards the things of God. It's a dangerous place to be, and you don't want to allow yourself to get there. But here's the most probably costly thing about it is Jesus said that if you don't keep your heart pure, it's going to cloud your perception of God. Let me give you a great example. You know, most of the people are, let me say a lot of the people, I don't want to use quite that broad a brushstroke, but let me say a lot of people that I have dealt with and ministered to that have thought that it was not God's will to heal everybody are people that their hearts are contaminated and hurt because God seemingly didn't answer a prayer for healing for them, and therefore they got offended at God. Now, what that did is it caused something to happen in their heart, and because they didn't keep their heart pure, it contaminates their perception of God. So now they don't believe God is a healer of everybody. Well, I believe he healed people in the, in the Bible days, but I'm not sure he does that today. Well, no, he's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was a healer in the Gospels, he's still a healer today. But what happened is, just as Jesus said, they did not keep their heart pure. They allowed, they got offended at God, really, is what it boils down to, and didn't deal with it. And so, therefore, it contaminated their perception of God. So, what is it that we're supposed to keep our heart pure for or, or with? And that is the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God and the Word of God to keep our heart clean and pure. Now, one way you do that is you stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit and let him lead and guide you 
And, and I'll just say it this way, let him challenge you where your heart motivations are concerned. Because, you know, um, sometimes we can justify things within our own thinking, and it seems right to us when really, when you boil it down, it's really not. And it takes the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. And we go, oh, yeah, I see that. I'm sorry, Lord, I repent of that in Jesus' name. And so what we do is we have to maintain that sensitivity. It's called tenderness of heart so that we're sensitive to God when he deals with us about things like that and be quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. And that way you keep your heart tender, you keep your heart pure, and let him judge the motivations of your heart. You know, I'm reminded of the scripture in 1 Samuel, when uh, Samuel went down to anoint uh, David as king. You remember he was looking at all of David's brothers, and uh, they all looked like they were good candidates, but the Lord stopped him. He said, listen, don't, don't look and judge by the outward appearance God doesn't do that. God looks at the heart. God is the one that judges the heart motivations of people. So it's very important that we keep our hearts pure. Look at verse 9. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, and I'm not knocking this, all right? I'm just using this as an example. A lot of times you hear at funerals, maybe for a fallen police officer or somebody like that, this scripture will get quoted referring to them as being a peace officer. Well, that's, that's you know, no uh, noble, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He, he talks, he's talking about something else. The peace that he's referring to is called the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, those who minister peace between people and God, which is what the gospel does, okay? Bringing people to God so that they can be reconciled to him. Now, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, just make a note of this, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Paul talking about the armor of God. He said, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation, listen, of the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. What is the good news? The gospel in its purest sense is this, God is not mad at us. He sent Jesus to die for us, and he wants peace with mankind. And he wants mankind to be at peace with him. Second Corinthians chapter five. I tell you what, turn over there, please. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, and verse seventeen. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in Second Corinthians five seventeen, and he said this. Therefore, you know this scripture: If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold. All things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay. Then he goes on to say, verse 19, that is, 
This is what the ministry of reconciliation says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what he's, what he's saying is, blessed are those who preach the gospel of peace. Blessed are those who are reconciling God and man. Matter of fact, you remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the high, in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The angels were excited and they were testifying to the fact that Jesus came to bring peace and goodwill towards men. That's the heart of God. God wants to extend peace and goodwill towards humanity. Now, going back to Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let me point out here, peacemaking does not make you a son of God, but it lets it be known that you are a son of God, okay? So don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When you're preaching the gospel of peace, it will be easily identifiable that you are a child of God, okay? It's not the, the, the peacemaking that makes you born again. It's, it's, that's an outworking of being born again. Witnessing lets people know that you are born again. That's why Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses for me into Jerusalem, Judea, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, let's go to verse 10 in Matthew 5. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, blessings come. It, this is, is just a fact. Blessings come to people, believers, that endure persecution. Blessings come. That's why Jesus could say early on in uh, Matthew, the ninth chapter, you know, that, hey, when people are reviling you, when they're persecuting you, do good to them. Pray for them. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Why? Because you know that there is a blessing that is yours because you're being persecuted for the gospel. Okay? So persecution comes to believers, especially when we begin to witness for the Lord. Okay? Now, if you get persecuted as a Christian because you make dumb decisions— that's not the kind of persecution he's talking about here, all right? That's stuff you bring upon yourself. But when you are out preaching the gospel, telling people about the good news, and persecution comes because of that, that is what Jesus is talking about, and you are blessed. Matthew 5, we'll read it later on. Well, just verse 11, he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you for my sake. Rejoice 
and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. Now, uh, let's skip down and let's look at verse 13. Okay. Jesus said this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, I want you to always remember, as we're talking about these things, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples, okay? And he's talking to them about ministry. Now, um, salt, let's talk about salt for a minute. Salt does three things primarily. Okay, if, you, if you're taking notes, write this down. Salt does three things primarily. Number one, it preserves. It preserves. It, it hinders the spread of decay and corruption. Okay, number two, salt brings out flavor. And number three, salt creates thirst. You ever... Uh, you know, eating something salty, and then after you did it, you were thirsty? Well, mm -hmm. it was the salt that you consumed that made you thirsty, okay? Now, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, it suggests these three things, purity, preservation, and flavor. Now, salt in the Roman world symbolized purity, no doubt from the process of using uh, salt water and the sun to acquire the salt. So, um, and salt is still produced in some parts of the world this way. You know, there are salt mines where people go and mine out salt. And then there is salt where they uh, build pools. I'm thinking of a place in France right now where uh, it's called Ile de Ray. It's an island off the coast of, of Western France where they build these little shallow ponds. They flood them with salt water and they let the sun uh evaporate the water out of it to where there's nothing but salt left in the ponds and they go and they scrape up that salt. And uh, so that's how they gathered the salt. Now, um, you know, there's several phrases that we use today that, that come to, from this, uh, using this form of, of generating salt, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. Okay. Because salt was a valuable commodity during that day. It's, it's the basis for the word that we use in our language today called salary. Anybody get paid a salary? Aren't you glad they pay you money and not salt? Okay. But have you ever heard the phrase where somebody, an employee, we say if they're no good, we say they're not worth their salt. All right. Mm -hmm. That's where this came from. Okay. Now, it was also used as a preservative in that day because obviously they didn't have ice and refrigeration ice boxes. And so um, what they would do is they would take meat and they would coat the meat in salt in order to preserve it. Now, what, what Jesus was saying is this, if salt loses its savor or its ability to be a preservative, Okay, notice what he said uh, down there in verse 13. 
Um, it is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, this is a reference of back in Roman day, in the, the day that Jesus was walking the earth, if, if a household had a lot of salt that had lost its flavor or its saltiness, rather, what they would do is they would take it and they would put it out and use it as a sidewalk. They would take it, it was, you know, granular, and they would take it and pour it out like gravel and walk on it because it was useless for anything else except for gravel, okay? Now, here's what I want you to see. In reference to what Jesus is saying, you and I are the ones that are preserving the earth so that Satan cannot destroy it. You need to understand that Satan would love to bring mass destruction to this planet. But it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is keeping that from happening. Go over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's look at something Paul said to the church at Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and look at verse 1. Paul said this, Now, brethren, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. See, there were people that were teaching, even back in Paul's day, that Jesus had already come and, and everybody was left behind. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin or the antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Now I want to pause right here and I want to say this, the antichrist has not been revealed. However, the spirit of antichrist is present in the world today. All right, and we're seeing it manifesting itself more and more and more. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining. Now here it goes, verse 6, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, now notice in, in my Bible, in the New King James, he is capitalized, so he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. All right, now, who is the he that Paul is referring to in verse 7? Well, I've heard people say, well, that's he, the Holy Spirit. Well, the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit will not be removed when the rapture takes place because there will be people that will be born again during the tribulation period. And uh, I'm not going to get into all that tonight, but uh, in order for people to born, be born again, the Holy Spirit has to be present. So there, who is the he that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the manifest body of Christ. He, the body of Christ, will be removed. And... Uh, 
when he who is now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the body of Christ being present in the earth at this moment is restraining the Antichrist from being able to fully reveal himself, fully manifest himself, and to carry out what he desires to carry out, okay? So we are the preservative. We are the ones that are keeping the devil from being able to destroy the earth. Now, number two, we said salt brings out flavor. Now, um, you know, have you ever eaten food that was bland, didn't have a whole lot of, if any, flavor to it whatsoever, what do we do? Well, we throw a little salt on it. Now, how do you know when you have salted it too much is when all you taste is the salt, okay? <laughs> salt is designed to bring out the flavor of food, the flavor that is already there. When it is applied properly, you really don't taste the salt. You taste more of the flavor of the food, okay? So the disciple is the salt of the earth, and we, what we're supposed to do is to bring out of the what God originally wanted this world to be, the original, not world, earth, what God really planned for this earth to be like. Our role in society is to enrich and purify Okay, um, so that it becomes a realm of blessing for humanity. In other words, what you and I are to do is we are to manifest the will of God in the earth and bring out God's original flavor, his original intention, what he wanted to have happen going all the way back to Adam. You and I are supposed to be manifesting that in the earth. Okay, then we said number three that salt creates thirst. Now, when you and I are living our lives according to the word of God, we should be making those that we come in contact with thirsty for the things of God. There needs to be something about us that causes people to want more of God. You know, they may not be able to articulate it. They may not be able to exactly, um, you know, really say what it is about us, but there ought to be something about us that makes people, first of all, become aware of God, and then secondly, want more of Him. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, you know, because of our own foolishness, we've made people turn away from God. But I believe that, you know, we're, we're learning to do better and we're changing and we're becoming more like Jesus and we're drawing people to the Lord. We're drawing people to God. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus, uh, you know, it says in uh, John 4, just make a note of it, Jesus answered, and this is where he's talking about, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. So whoever drinks of the natural water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. See, we need to be allowing that fountain to flow out of us. We need to be, the Bible says that out of our belly shall flow rivers 
of living water. There ought to be living water, fountains of living water flowing out of us that people can come and consume from us. And in that consumption for somebody that's not born again will only make them more thirsty. Somebody says, well, how, how, how does that manifest? Well, you know, there's many ways that it can be manifest. It could be through a manifestation of the power of God. It could be a manifestation of the love of God. It could be a manifestation of us just being good to people. You know, there's several ways that it can be manifest, but whatever we're doing, it should cause people, well, it's actually could cause one of two things. Number one, people to get mad at you, or number two, hunger for more of what you have, okay? For the ones that get mad at you, let them get mad. But but what we should always do is being uh, encouraging people with our lifestyle and what is coming up out of our spirits to draw them and to want them or cause them to want to become filled with whatever it is that we're full of, okay? Now, one thing that we need to understand is that the salt we have today was much more pure than the salt of Jesus day because we have purification processes and all of that. So again, you know, if salt lost its its worthness, then again, they would do nothing but throw it out and walk on it and let it become uh sidewalks if you will, gravel sidewalks. Now, what we never want to do is allow our saltiness to become that to where we lose our saltiness and we're no better than what is thrown out in the world and people walk on in the sense of there's nothing that sets us apart, okay? So go back to Matthew 5. And I want to begin to wrap this up. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, after, you know, after talking about being the salt of the earth, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, notice Jesus said, we are the light of the entire world, okay? Now, what is interesting is that the, the word world there, okay, is different. Go back and look at verse 5. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, okay? If you want to make a note, the Greek word for earth in verse 5 is just a two-letter little Greek word, G, G-E like General Electric, okay? It's where we get our word geology or geography, okay? So Jesus used that word when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth, talking about a physical, literal um, place, piece of ground or real estate, if you will, okay? Now, when he said, you are the light of the world, he used a different word. He used the Greek word cosmos, which means the world's system or the world order. So the world system operates and functions in complete darkness. Here's why, because that is what is controlled by satanic powers. All right, now, let me just help you understand something. The Bible says in the, in the Psalms that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So I, I don't want you to ever forget that the planet, the physical planet Earth, belongs to God. The world system that is at work in the Earth does not belong to God. Now, what happened is 
uh, Adam was in charge of both at one time. He turned the world system over to Satan, and in so doing, gave Satan a lease over the physical planet. But, but God is still the owner of the planet. So I want you to understand that. So when Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, he's talking about the, the literal place, planet, earth. But then when he said, you are the light of the world, he's talking about that world order that Satan is responsible for and functions in complete and utter darkness. Okay, now, the world, the word light there is not talking about physical light. It is referring to the light of the gospel or God's word in a dark, non-revelation filled world. Okay, now, You've probably heard uh, and remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Uh, let me read it to you. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. See, people that are in the world that are lost are blind and they're blind people fumbling around in the dark without any source of light whatsoever. When you and I show up on the scene, we are the ones that bring the light into that darkness. We are the ones that are bringing the light of the gospel into that. So how do we do that? By the words that we speak and by the lifestyle that we live. We do it by the words that we speak and the lifestyle that we live. Now, here's the good news. There's coming a day when the cosmos is going to be done away with, and the G, G-E, under God, is what's going to remain. When Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, that world order is going away. It will be done away with, and the planet, the physical planet, ruled and reigned, by the Lord Jesus, and in turn us, will, will be what is left over, okay? Now, Jesus goes on to say, let's couple a couple more verses, and then we'll quit, verses 15 and 16. Now, he says that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and, give, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The Message Bible says this, if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. All right? So um, we have barely scratched the surface of this, but I am out of time. So we, we need to wrap this up right here. But I wanted to get this introduced. If you can see just from verses 3 through 16, Jesus has already said a mouthful. Okay, now what's going to happen, and we'll see this as we get into it more and more as we build on it. The, you remember the crowds that were following Jesus everywhere he went? Well, mm -hmm. in the course of this sermon, 
they show up. Because you'll notice if you really study Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'll see the tone of Jesus' sermon changes a little bit. Now, you know, there's an old saying in, uh, I, I guess, preaching or public speaking, whatever you want to call it, that says this, know your audience, okay? In the sense of, uh, you know, what good is someone who preaches or teaches above the heads of everybody that's, you know, that's present? Uh, you know, we're not to water down the Word of God. Don't misunderstand me. But if if you try and preach things so deep and people can't get it, it's useless. So you need to be aware of your audience. And as a pastor especially, I need to know uh, where my flock is and what the Lord is saying to them. And Jesus was so skilled at this. He was, he was, he, you know, perfected it and personified it in such a way. And you will see that in this sermon that span, we span over three chapters, that the tone begins to change and you can see where it goes from just telling the disciples how to do ministry. It goes to becoming talking to the general public about how to live their lives as believers. And so you will see that transformation take place as we study this and get into this. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.